4: Welcome to Exposure. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Abby Newton. Today we sit down to talk with Mike Brand, the Wharton Center Executive Director, and Bert Goldstein, the Director of the Michigan State University Federal Credit Union Institute for Arts and Creativity. Next, we will talk with Professor Lori Thorpe and Liz Brivich about bringing worms to Michigan State University. Next, we will talk with visiting Professor uh, Ryan Clitor to talk about an upcoming comics forum. And lastly, we will hear from a local jazz band with Roots in Lansing. Since opening its doors in 1982, the Wharton Center has been a place for quality performing arts at Michigan State University. However, five years ago, a new and exciting idea came to the Wharton Center. The Michigan State University Federal Credit Union Institute for Arts and Creativity was born. Yesterday, Burt Goldstein, the director of the Institute for Arts and Creativity, and Mike Brand, Wharton Center's executive director, came into the studio to tell us about the Institute and its impact. It
2: was designed to interface the performing arts and artists that we present at Wharton Center with faculty in the various colleges here at Michigan State University to try and get a little better integration of the performing arts into the life of the university and it's been succeeding very well it's it's kind of a little different idea in how we can present to faculty, professors, uh, and teachers throughout the state. But um, the, the genesis of it was right here at Michigan State, and it's grown in various amount of, uh, number of colleges here. I think we're dealing now with about 12, 13 deans on a regular basis in a number of departments. And some of that energy then goes off campus throughout other school systems and areas. But the whole idea was to find a different way to utilize the creativity of the performing arts in education curriculum. We've had the Stratford Shakespeare Festival here now I think for five years and every different college that has that integrated into their uh, classes for that week create different ideas and different things that are done in those classrooms.
4: And what has the student response been so far?
2: I think it's been very healthy Bert wouldn't you say? Oh, Student response
5: has been tremendous on campus. Uh, Mike uh, talked about the Stratford Shakespeare Festival coming down. They're working with actors who are actively working or have worked at the festival, so they're young. They're very hip. They know how to work with young people, and the beauty of that particular program. Not only do we serve, you know, various entities on campus. They also go out to middle schools and high schools and work with students who are approaching Shakespeare for the first time. So uh, with that particular program, it's just it's they're they're very appealing and. What Stratford does so well is they make Shakespeare so accessible and approachable, unlike the way you know I <laughs> learned it when I was in high school or, or even in college. Um, and so that's, it, it, the student response to almost everything that we do has been uh, really great. We did a playwriting workshop with some students in the Residential College of Arts and Humanities a couple years ago. Uh, we have this program with a dance and theater company in Minneapolis Uh, that comes in and works with medical students on doctor-patient relationship using the arts as a catalyst for that. And uh, this has been a transformational experience for the students in the College of Osteopathic Medicine. We just finished it for the third year in a row, and they are so excited about it. And the medical students tell us year after year... After the workshop, and they have like three days, about 17 hours with Stuart Pimsler and Susan Suzanne Costello, who run this company. They tell us year after year that it reminds them of why they went into medicine. Because the arts are so connected to humanity and basic needs of humanity and basic human expression, um, and they're just overwhelmed. And so the College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is When I first came on campus, I didn't even know they existed, and they didn't know we existed, I don't think. Uh, They knew we existed as a performing arts center, but they didn't know we existed as as outreach and education. It's just been an overwhelming experience for them, and they are so positive about it.
4: That's great. I'm sure as are others as well. Mm, Now, how did you get involved with this um, project?
5: Well, they hired me. <laughs> when uh, when Mike created the Institute in 2008, they were looking for a director. And I, at the time, I was uh, the education director for the two-time Tony Award-winning Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Uh, and I'd been there for 12 years and uh, had been producing theater there for young audiences as well as running an education program, largely K-12. Um, and we would serve people in four different states through all of our programming. Um, but... When Mike talked to me and when I found out about the Institute looking for a director, uh, it sounded very appealing to come up, to start a new program, to work with some of the pre-existing programs, but there was a lot of opportunity here. And uh, it was really uh, very exciting for me to to have been offered the job and to be implementing the program. Um, The Wharton Center provides resources. We have a great facility. I mean... We have three rehearsal studios now. We have the beautiful Payson stage. We have the you know, the Cobb stage. It's, uh, it's been a tremendous opportunity, and um, we've been doing just so many exciting things. Uh, we've been producing theater. We've been doing a lot of programs, like with the Kennedy Center. We have a Kennedy Center Partners in Education program for teachers. Uh, we have the Young Playwrights Festival. It continues to be a strong program for us where we give high school students the opportunity to write plays and... and um, uh, get them produced in our collaboration with the Department of Theater. So it was just a really wonderful opportunity.
4: And now how has this benefited the Wharton Center as a whole?
2: Well, it's basically uh, kind of our heart and soul. You know, <laughs> this this is what we give back to the community. This is how we help kids, you know, work on identifying things that they have inside of them. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Bert's background, which made him, so attractive to engage here is his producing background, because the Institute's work that he's done over the past five years has focused on very many, uh, a a number of big issues like literacy. So we have the Young Playwrights uh, program that he's alluded to, and we're going to be expanding that into poetry and songwriting and things like that. And then he's also produced... um, Small Eight minutes. plays that really are very issue-oriented, dealing with autism, with uh, obesity, childhood obesity and nutrition, and um, I think next year you're going to be looking at doing one on bullying, right? Um, school which school. is going to be a big production, but he's involved in a, one of the most remarkable Did you send that works, last or was that, works that we're creating. Uh, my predecessor uh, uh, created an endowment for commissioning new work, so... Um, Bert's going to kind of explain this new work because it's really, I think, going to be a magnificent addition to not only arts education, but for people who want to experience the arts uh, yeah. in live live theater and music. you want to explain this new Go project? Ahead.
5: Sure. Um, for two years, we've been working on a new play by Ken Lizepnik called The Garden of Joy. And the play celebrates the diversity and the magnificent creativity that came out of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, So this is a play that infuses the music of Duke Ellington and Fats Waller and a couple other composers with the literature of Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, W.E. Du Bois, uh, County Cullen, and other writers. Uh, What's fun about the play, it's kind of a review of the Harlem Renaissance, and Ken Lezebnik, who wrote it, Uh, for many years, was a writer for Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. So when I approached him with the commission, I said, the Harlem Renaissance is the project that we want. I said, I want the literature and music integrated into this. And he came back just a couple of weeks later and said, well, what if we write this as a live radio broadcast from a Harlem nightclub in 1929 on New Year's Eve? So the whole structure and style of the play is if it's a radio broadcast in front of a live audience, so we have all the Foley sound equipment, the door knocks and the bells and the whistles that go off, that would have gone off on a live radio broadcast. Um, Ken is a terrific playwright. Uh, He wrote a play that we did last year, and, and Mike alluded to it, called Theory of Mind, a play about a young man with autism that we toured for two years and was profoundly impactful, not only on the autism community that saw it, but for general high school students that saw it. So I was excited to work with Ken again, and I gave him this project. He's written this piece. The other component of this I think is very exciting is we've engaged Alvin Waddles to be the musical director. And Alvin is a Detroit-based uh, musician. Uh, he works a lot with the I'm gonna Detroit I'm going to do what Opera, we did last time and have you the best. already be up. the gospel, jazz, blues, pianist I have ever heard. He's brilliant and he's done all the arranging of these songs he's doing all the musical direction and i think it's um i think it really covers a lot of what was going on in the harlem renaissance we have the joy and the fun you know when you think of the harlem renaissance you think of the people in nightclubs and going out and going to the cotton club and all these places and there's that that aspect to it but the one thing i think ken has done that's very smart is a lot of material in the play that reflects the political and social dilemmas that were going on in the time uh, at this time, there were two lynchings of a black person per week, and we, we integrate that into the play. Uh, we talk about some of the, the gulf between the rich and the poor. Uh, there's a piece in the play by Langston Hughes called An Advertisement for the Waldorf Astoria, which is a sort of scathing piece about this beautiful opulent building that was being built in Manhattan when people were starving and sleeping on the subways and begging for food. So there's a really nice balance in this between the fun and the comic and yet the political and the social things that were going on. Um, and so I think he's just created a really wonderful script. We've been rehearsing a week and the actors are just really loving the play and they've thrown themselves into it. I'm excited that we're uh, doing three student performances, so there'll be three opportunities for middle school and high school students to see it, and then we have a couple of public performances. As Mike said, it just it represents the spirit of the Wharton Center so much, and and the spirit of the institute for arts and creativity we should have creativity happening on site we should have artists here creating work in my view and and mike for all his credit has really embraced that and supported it and helped get funding for that and i think that's really paid off i think audiences have really appreciated it i think we've done some work that's been very meaningful um and uh it's also it's a lot of fun to <laughs> go into the rehearsal hall and create something.
4: Now, you seem to be very intrigued, like uh, Mike said, about big issue plays mm-hmm. and productions. Right. Why is that?
5: I don't know. I guess I spend too much time reading the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I have a, a real interest in, in politics and social issues. I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I think some of that stayed with me. And the way that I've been able to engage in those issues has been through live theater. Young audiences are very perceptive, and I think there's also a hunger for this kind of material. This is why I like to pursue those projects. And even the Garden of Joy, which is will be done for 1,800 middle school and high school students over a three-day period. You know, I mentioned the political and social things. You know, um, this is an education on really the impact of the Depression and what it had on people. And I think there are strong parallels between what was going on in the 1920s and early 1930s and what's going on today. We mentioned the Waldorf Astoria, the gulf between the rich and the poor. And I think that when we can present that in a way that's not only entertaining, with good scripts, and that's always my first criteria, is the work of art has to be good. I just won't do a play just because it's about bullying or because it's about racism or because it's about this or it's about that. It has to be a good piece of theater. Mm-hmm. Then I'm interested in it. And then I'm looking at, you know, producing something, again, that has some meaning. Two-thirty.
4: And Mike, um, you know, one of the goals of the Institute is to enrich and engage with the Michigan, or enrich the lives of Michigan residents and really engage with them. How has it done that so far?
2: Well, um, you know, uh, obviously they provide us with a lot of great audiences in the trading area. But I think (laughs) one of the unique things uh, Bert brought to the campus is some of these productions that he's described here in the last few minutes. We he actually has employed MSU undergraduate and graduate theater students, um, either as directors or choreographers or actors. And a lot of them have gone on to to get their equity card, which is a professional um, <laughs> achievement. And a number of them are in New York on, right. on Broadway shows and other Lord theaters. But I think when you talk to some of the students here that have been here and they get a chance to work with the Stratford Shakespeare Festival actors as interns and co-teaching in some cases. We have a big Broadway camp here every summer. It goes all over the state. I think one of the best things that, that has been um, kind of uh, uh, an effect of the Institute's work is um, that we really can enhance the students' education here by interfacing them with these great internationally renowned artists and our faculty are very good at integrating these artists and opportunities into what they do in the College of Arts and Letters. So I think that's something that's very plus. It's a win-win for a number of things for our audience. For all the things Bert talked about. One minute. Plus for the students as getting an experience in the professional side that is not really open to them in another type of situation.
5: You know, again, what we hear over and over again is how transformational this was, how wonderful it was when we have a teaching artist or a professional artist go in a classroom and work with a group of kids on writing a play or writing poetry or, you know, learning something about Brazilian drumming. Um, and you just see Pulling what a difference your mic it makes. Up now, think, okay. You know, on a K to 12 level, the arts have been really hit hard in the schools. Budget cuts have hurt that, and fortunately, but unfortunately, sometimes we're the last stand for some of these schools when we can provide a residency or some opportunity for dwindling arts programming. And so we do what we can do to, you know, one advocate for the arts, but get get this into as many schools and uh, affect as many students as we can. So. Uh, I think that's kind of what we're up to.
4: Well, thank you very much for coming in. It was a pleasure having you.
2: Yeah, thanks, Abby. And we wish you the best of luck. Thanks.
4: Again, the performance, The Garden of Joy, will be Friday, March 15th, and Saturday, March 16th. For ticket information, you can visit the Wharton Center website, which is w-h-a-r-t-o-n-center.com, or you can call 1-800-WHARTON. Now lately, much talk and news has surrounded Pope Benedict XVI's announcement that he will resign. While the Catholic Church is still in search of a new leader, our very own Mary Hathaway discovered how East Lansing Catholics responded to the events. In
6: just two days' time, an event will occur that has not happened in over 600 years. Pope Benedict XVI will resign his papal office. He will become only the fourth pope in history to voluntarily resign. On February 11th, Pope Benedict announced his resignation, stunning the world. When I asked local members of the Catholic community what their first reaction was when they heard the news, there was an overwhelming consensus.
5: I was really surprised. I was shocked. I didn't believe it at first. I was surprised.
6: Father Mark Inglot, pastor of St. Thomas's Aquinas Parish and St. John's Church Student Center in East Lansing, was surprised by this sudden announcement, but felt that the Pope's decision was noble.
2: And I was shocked. I mean, I I thought it was a joke at first. After I thought about it uh, for just a few minutes, I just thought, well, what a great act of humility on his part. But, you know, I think that the Holy Father recognized that, um... The situation in the world and in the church just need that position today is so different and so demanding that needs somebody with new vigor, energy.
6: According to the Vatican, the pope had been thinking and praying about his decision for months. Recently, Pope Benedict even had a stroke, which contributed to his final decision. Since this is the first time in centuries that a pope has resigned, it has left many wondering if this move will set a new precedent for future popes. Katie Dillard, who is Director of Student Outreach at St. John Church's Student Center, feels that it will change how the papacy is lived. I do suspect that within our lifetime, we will see more popes resign. Um, You know, it's been 700 years since the last one. I bet we'll have another one within the next 70 You know, that will do the same thing, if not many of them." On Thursday, when the pope officially steps down from office, the Vatican will begin the process of electing a new pope. 117 cardinals from all over the world will come together in Vatican City to hold what is called a conclave. In conclave, the cardinals are locked into the Sistine Chapel until they have voted for the new pope and have reached a two-thirds majority. After each vote, they will burn the ballots with a special chemical to change the color of the smoke. If the smoke is black, the Cardinals have not yet reached a two-thirds majority. If the smoke is white, a new pope has been elected. As the world's one billion Catholics wait for the historic event to begin, many local Catholics are speculating what the next pope will bring to the church, including MSU sophomore Taylor Petrowski, who is looking for a more youth-minded pope.
7: I don't really care about the whole, like, liberal, like, traditional, and there. I don't know, maybe... Someone from like Latin America, like Africa, like get a spicy pope or something like that. But otherwise, just looking for a guy who's just vibrant, just something like that, like someone who can lead, like not only with their actions and be strong with that, but also just in the words and just inspire
8: people.
6: But until the next pope is elected, and no one knows exactly when the next conclave will take place, the Catholic Church will continue to pray for their current and future leader. And our sorrows
7: to the word of the Lord.
6: Thanks, for Impact News, I'm Mary Hathaway.
3: You're listening to
4: Impact Exposure. For the past two weeks, students in the RISE program at Michigan State have been busy constructing a vermicomposting bed. Now what is this, you may ask? Think of it as a big, huge bin full of worms. You heard me right. The students have been exploring ways in which to decrease food residue on campus. I sat down with the director of the RISE program, Lori Thorpe, and student leader, Liz Bryvich earlier this week to discuss this interesting project.
0: So first off, what is the RISE program, Professor Thorpe? The RISE program stands for the Residential Initiative on the Study of the Environment. We're a living learning program located in Bailey Hall. It is a academic specialization or a minor, um, and we serve seven colleges here on campus, so we have students from well over 45 majors. Liz is a Fisheries and Wildlife major, but we have students in the Anthropology, Zoology, Engineering, the list goes on and on. The thing that's in common with all of those students is they have a passion for the environment and um, are taking some special courses in Environmental Studies. And you right now are
4: working on a very specific and interesting project, I'd say. Liz, what is this project? Well, right now we're
8: starting vermicomposting, which is composting with worms in the Bailey Hoop House. So as part of the program, we actually have our own greenhouse on campus, and in there we're going to start composting the food residue from the Brody cafeteria, so like when they chop up the pineapples and they have all the pineapple heads and they peel the carrots and they do crazy things to potatoes, I don't even know what they do in there, but there's a lot of scraps that could be composted that um, we will actually feed to worms and then the worms will eat eat it up and process it and then we'll have really great castings, which are worm poop, that's <laughs> actually just um, a really great fertilizer that we can use on campus
0: or even sell.
4: Okay, why do you feel like this is important?
0: I love this program. It's so great. We love it. Well, one of the things that's so important is we are really interested in looking at reducing this campus's environmental footprint. And part of that environmental footprint is the cafeteria food waste um, or food residue. Um, We're trying to change that language. So um, one of the things we're not we don't want to say is that that food is waste, because actually it's a very valuable resource. Um, It's been viewed as a waste, and so that waste has been put in the landfill or in the sanitary sewer, which is not a very good place to put something that can be composted, because compost is a wonderful, sustainable source of fertility for our food system. So what we're doing with this is we're taking these food scraps from Brody and cycling them through the worms and And then turning it into this really valuable resource. And that resource is also being sold at the MSU surplus store. So community members, you can come to the MSU surplus center and, um, the worm castings from this project are for sale there. Um, I also want to brag a little bit on Liz because <laughs> she's gorgeous. a first-year student here, and she's an amazing young leader. Um, the reason we're doing this project is because she wrote a grant with um, three of her colleagues to the Office of Campus Sustainability, the B. Spartan Green Fund, and they were funded $5,000 to start this project, and then I'm going to turn it over to Liz and let her talk a little bit more about that project specifically that's funded through OCS. We actually
8: do vermicomposting on the student organic farm, but by bringing it on campus, it's going to be somewhere where students can see it. Classes can come look at it. It's going to be a visible presence on our campus of closing the loop, making sure that what we make isn't isn't just turned into something that's waste. It's actually turned into something that's a new resource by turning it into that compost. And I think this will be a great chance to have a presence on campus and in the Bailey Hoop House to show what we're really capable of as a university in transitioning to new systems
0: like this. John and I have been composting at the Student Organic Farm for mm, probably three years now. And it's not always a project that students are jumping for joy to get (laughs) involved with, to get their hands in the dirt and handle red, you know, worms and, and... Food waste. And so when we met Liz this fall and then learned that she had spearheaded this huge vermicomposting project back in her home school system in California, we were pretty excited to hitch up with her and her leadership skills and her knowledge about vermicomposting. So um, it's a really neat marriage of interests and skills um, and bringing this to the students it's one thing for me as a professor to bring this information and and bring it to the farm and bring it to students but when peers peer-to-peer mentoring can you know when someone cool and hip like Liz can say get her picture on the front page of the state news with her hands in the dirt and her chipped red pink fingernail polish and a fistful of worms you know it makes recycling and composting cool which is really what I've always thought and I think Liz has too that this is really cool stuff and we want more people to get involved with it.
4: How did your idea start to do the vermicomposting?
8: I think I realized a big... In Way that on campus we had room for a project like this. I've been comfortable doing it before at my high school, at other schools in my district, and so I thought at MSU, at such a big school, we have so much. We have the space for it. We have the students for it. We have definitely enough scraps that we could be using. And I thought there was just a really good opportunity there, especially when we found out about the Be Spartan Green Fund in our Rise class. We had a grant writing assignment, and I thought that was the perfect opportunity to get on something I really wanted to do. And when did you start
4: it in your high school? How did that project play out?
8: I had read about some school doing it in another state, and I thought, that is, like, the weirdest thing. There's no way that works. That's, like, that's so weird. And then I looked into it, and I realized it wasn't weird. It's super cool. It happens in nature. There's no reason that we shouldn't be using it here. And the thing is, like, people think worm bins are gross, but they don't smell. You got a chance to smell one of our bins. They just smell like dirt. She's (laughs) correct. They smell like dirt. It's it's really easy, actually, for everyone to do. You just add food. Worms can eat up to their weight and food scraps a day. It's a, it's an awesome way to see yourself actually having an impact. Like, your trash isn't going into a landfill, where when you um, put these scraps in a landfill, they actually generate methane gas when they decompose, which is a greenhouse gas. So when we instead use the process of composting, we're turning them into fertilizer instead of these evil forces <laughs> contributing to global warming. So, sure.
4: And I hear that you have one in your room, actually.
8: This is true. I do have a vermicomposting bin under my bed. and They're
4: not considered pets, so I think you're good with RHA. <laughs> Hopefully RHA doesn't bust in on me, but right. so
8: far we've been really good.
4: What, if, what was the response of your roommate?
8: My roommate was, she's a zoology major, so she doesn't really have the heebie-jeebies about animals. She was pretty cool with it. She actually came with me to get the worms, and um, the bin, the bin
4: doesn't smell, so she's complaint-free with that. That's good. And where do you find, get the worms? Are they specific
0: worms for the bin, or how does
4: that process work?
0: Well, not just any worm will do. We had to get that in. Um, it's a special, it's a special worm. And for Liz's bin, we went out to the student organic farm and got the worms from our giant vermicomposting project out there. Um, these are red worms. These aren't the common earthworm that you see on a rainy day out on, flopping around on the sidewalk. (laughs) Um, They're also often called manure worms. They're, um, they're de- composers that are found in kind of leaf litter in the forest, but there's commercial enterprises that actually grow these worms for commercial purposes like what we're doing. So it's a movement really across the country because food waste is on everybody's radar now, and people are paying attention to what they're doing with their food waste and that it actually is a resource that can be used in a world where we have limited resources. So, and there's also an appalling amount of food waste on this planet, which we're trying to work both ends of this. So we're also working with Carla Yasanda in um culinary services um she just recently did a f- did a food waste audit in a couple of the res halls and i won't i don't have the exact data on that but I, I know it was over a pound of plate waste per student per day because all of that food that's wasted is also wasted energy that's gone into the production of that and then something has to be done with it now what does yeah. the
4: worm vermicomposting bin
8: actually <clears throat>
0: look like Oh, good question.
8: The style of the bin that we went with is a flow-through composter. So how it'll work is that it's it's pretty big. It's I think it's like eight feet long. It it's is. made of wood. And how it works is we'll be able to add food on the top of it, and you'll just bury it under a layer of litter. We'll be using newspaper and leaves as bedding. What we'll do is we'll add the new food materials at the top and then the worms will be living near the middle top of the bin and then as they process the food waste it'll actually, their castings will flow through a system of like kind of like pipes that we have setting up set up horizontally so that way the castings will fall through to bins we have at the bottom so it'll be really easy for us to get and use this great fertilizer without having to remove the worms and sort through things so it's a really cool, originally they just used to throw a whole bunch of worms in a bin that's what I'm used to but now with this flow-through system it's a way that we're making it a lot more efficient and a lot easier to do too.
0: And then worm bins and so Liz doesn't have an eight-foot worm bin in her room. No. <laughs> worm bins come in, although she probably would. Um, I would if I could. <laughs> I think she would. Uh, we'll put still that time. On next year's project right. There you go. Um, but they come in all shapes and sizes and so the worm bin for example that she has in her room is just made out of a simple um, storage tub and you drill holes in the top so that air can get in and you make a moist bedding and it can be shredded newspaper or, or leaf litter from the forest floor or you know a little bit of soil and then some food scraps um, and I first learned about worm bins when I used to work with elementary schools in the Lansing area because there's a whole curriculum that elementary school teachers love to use around a worm bin. And so teachers often have them in their classrooms because kids actually love to get their hands in the dirt. I used to have students want to put worms in their pockets and take them home. (laughs) Yeah, but then it grew into our bigger interest of, okay, how do we scale this up for campus? And um, that's where we're at now.
8: What we want to do is set an example first with this demonstration bin in the Bailey Hoop House and show that, look, this can work at MSU. Students caught on to this. They thought that this was something they wanted to support. And then the goal is to share our success and share how we did this with other universities and get them to do similar things because every school should be doing this, every business should be doing this. This, this should be something that everyone does, just like using a trash can, the worms are
0: an awesome tool. And then they're going to also offer a worm bin workshop. So that'll be available to students if they're interested. Um, we hope lots and lots of people come. Um, we got really cute stickers that say (laughs) I've got
8: worms at MSU. (laughs) They're Uh very cute. We're just trying to show people that this is something accessible. Like you can do it. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be like a weird environmental kid to do it. Like it's a cool thing to do.
0: We're, you know, we're kind of, you know, Liz and I kind of think we can save the world with worms. Really no can. one's stopping Quite him. honestly, we really do. One worm at a time. Exactly. One banana peel at a time. I think t-shirts could definitely oh. be in the mix oh, here. The There's ordered. so many quotes the I'm hearing. Got the we're t-shirts good. ordered. They're covered. We're good. Ball caps
8: next. <laughs> I think we're somewhere. at MSU Worms on Twitter. <laughs> so that's about
4: to be trending. Watch out. Hint, hint. <laughs> oh my goodness. What has the reaction so far been from students?
8: it's always the same people are always like no you don't that's so gross (laughs) and I'm like okay yeah I do like this is a real thing and they're like worms and you're like yeah worms and then once you explain it to them like this this switch kind of clicks and they're like wow like that actually makes so much sense and that's why we do it we do it because it makes sense and it's an awesome resource to use so I think people actually they get kind of excited about it it seems weird to get excited about worms but there's also so many good puns that go along with it you
4: know how many times have I heard oh Liz has got worms you know like That's, okay, that's really funny. So, and I've experienced this reaction, because when you first told me you had one in your bedroom, I was like, oh my god, this girl has worms in her bedroom? Like, what? But definitely I'm at the excitement stage with you now.
0: All of the vermicompost that we'll be generating from the Brody Square pre-consumer food waste residue will be used then in the Bailey Hoop House with the product that we grow there, so we grow culinary herbs and salad mix um, for Brody Square in the stateroom, which is this really lovely closing the cycle. So once something that was once food residue, pineapple tops, a pineapple tap is a terrible thing to waste is one of our other fun <laughs> phrases, um, gets digested by worms. They create this great compost. The compost then goes into the bed, the different beds in the hoop house. We grow salad mix. The salad mix goes to the veg out. You eat the veg out salad and it comes back. We've
4: got a circle life it's at MSU. Nice, cool. yeah.
0: And, and we have to give a shout out to Dr. Birnbaum. really. He's the brains behind this project. Liz and I are just the pretty faces. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doing some incredible research, uh, really scholarly research, on looking at the various things that need are appropriate to feed the worms and the, the media that is the output of the pro the the process, um, and his he's got two grad students that are also on the project in the Department of Horticulture. So we wanna we wanna give our um, our kudos to John and helping us with this project. We couldn't yeah. do it without his help.
4: Professor Vaughn gave us his take on the project during the worm construction.
5: There's just less access to fertilizer, and what we're trying to do is increase access to materials that people can make themselves. So lower cost, simple, but also Uh, On a lot of farms, you have animal manure that you can use to fertilize your plants, but in cities, you don't have that. In cities, what you do have is a lot of leaves, a lot of paper, cardboard, and then food waste. And those are all things that will make great uh, compost for growing plants. And So I'm certainly investing in this because I'm hoping that it's going to continue to grow.
8: I'm just really in it for getting students involved and helping them see how awesome of a process it really is. Okay. Well, one last question: How many worms are in this um, bin? Okay, get ready. We're gonna have ten pounds of worms.
0: I think it's in about a zillion. Bin. Is that it's, right? It's Liz? about a
8: zillion. That's a good. That's a good, <laughs> solid scientific measurement. I can't even fathom. I think 10 there's pounds a thousand. A thousand worms in a pound, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it sounds like you guys have an exciting time
4: ahead of you. But thank you so much for coming in. We really wish you the best of luck. Thank, thank you for you. having us.
3: You're listening to
4: Impact Exposure.
7: This is the Peter Nelson Quartet performing our arrangement of Nature Boy. Was a boy, a certain strange enchanted boy. They said he traveled very far, very far over land and sea, a little shy and sad allies, but very wise was he Then one day one magic day he came my way. As we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me: the greatest joy you'll ever hope to learn is just to love, be loved in return. Whoa, don't let
1: it
4: Michigan State University Comics Forum is an annual event that brings together scholars, creators, and fans in in order to explore and celebrate the medium of comics, graphic storytelling, and sequential art. The 2013 Michigan State University Comics Forum is scheduled to take place March 1st and 2nd at the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities in Snyder Phillips Hall. Now in the studio to talk about this event is MSU Comics Forum Director, Ryan Claytor, welcome.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
4: You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Now tell us about the Comics Forum. What is it exactly?
3: You did a pretty good job (laughs) summing it up right there. Basically, I like to tell people that it's an event for scholars, creators, and fans of comics. And I think that's where our event is unique. Um, You know, most other events either focus on, like, comic conventions, for example. Uh, It's all about the fans meeting the artists, whereas, uh, you know, scholarly forums about comics are pretty much just for comic scholars. But this is the one event that I know about where all those different people mix and meet and talk with one another and see what each other is doing.
4: Okay, and what's the history behind the event? How did it come to be?
3: Um, Well, I came to Michigan about five years ago, and this started about six years ago. So the first year, I was not around for it, but, uh, you know, I create comics, I write and illustrate comics, and I also teach a comics class here at MSU. And uh, so needless to say, when I got here about five years ago, uh, I found the comics forum in very short order and got involved. Um, I'm the director of the forum now and uh, keep it running with a group of really fantastic folks. Uh, I certainly could not do it alone. Um, but over the past several years, we've grown the forum to, uh, now we have about three dozen artists in artist alley. We have panel dis- discussions happening throughout the day on Saturday. Uh, we've got Uh, you know, bigger and bigger names and keynote speakers. Um, You know, we had some really fantastic folks from around Michigan that we were bringing in the first few years. But once our budget has increased a little bit, we were able to pull people from out of state and get people here who uh, Michiganders wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So um, I'm really proud of what we've grown it into, which is now a multi-day events. Uh, You mentioned March 1st and 2nd, which events are happening then, but we also have a documentary screening on Thursday, February 28th, and right now there's a an art exhibition of 1950s comics that's happening uh this is curated from the michigan state university special collections library which is the largest public collection of comics in the entire world and we have it right here in our own backyard so uh, lots of exciting stuff happening
4: okay and where did your interest in comics begin
3: uh probably as a kid i uh I didn't take to reading all that well. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I could read just fine, and I was a good student, but it wasn't something that I did for pleasure. And as I've grown older, I've come to realize I'm a much more visual person, and I think our culture is tending that way too. I mean, you see lots of visual interfaces, and uh, you know, you see that on the web and with new uh, operating systems being released. Everything's very drag and drop, uh, plug and play type of thing. So, uh, comics this intersection of words and pictures suited me a lot better than just wading through pages of text. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and how did your parents think of this uh, career path when you first said it?
3: Um, they were supportive in varying degrees. My mom, <laughs> you know, was, uh, I think, sort of a closet artist. She's really amazing, but doesn't do as much work as I wish she would. So she was really supportive, and my dad is much more of a business-minded, business-savvy person. Uh, so I think he may have questioned it more than mom. But I think I got some of his business-savvy genes because it kind of helps out in you know self-publishing and organizing events like this. So uh, I probably got a little of both mom and dad in that.
4: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now how is comics different than any other form of storytelling?
3: Well, it's this unique blend of art and literature. And I don't think that exists anywhere else. Um, So with comics, you can do different things than you can with books or different things than you can with uh, movies or television. For example, in movies or TV, you're basically wed to one format. It's just one size and it stays that way. Whereas in a comics form, you can change the panel size to tall to emphasize height or wide to emphasize breadth or have your characters bursting out of the panel borders to kind of break that fourth wall. Uh, And you also have the page itself that you can work with. You know, how are you arranging these panels and how does that speak to the story itself? So there's a lot of unique to comics aspects that you can work with.
4: Sounds like it. And what's the business side of comics? You know, really getting into the field, the whole career path for those who are unfamiliar.
3: There are... So many different paths you can take. Uh, it's hard to list all of them. I mean, in traditional comics, uh, there's kind of the assembly line path where uh, you have a writer, a penciler, an anchor, a colorist, and a letterer all working toward a single book. And this is like the Marvel or DC method. But you've also got uh, more independent comics, which are oftentimes done by a single artist who does all of those jobs. Uh, so you could be uh, promoting your own work if you're a self-publisher, or you could be doing one part in this larger assembly line piece to create the comic.
4: Okay. And uh, you know what the new digital age coming to be? How will that affect the comics world?
3: Um it's already affecting it in the sense that people are trying lots of different things digitally. Um, you know, some people are making websites. Some people are essentially releasing, uh, you know, pages that you would see in a book online first. Uh, some folks are adding animation. Some folks are starting to make uh, comics that are completely unlike anything we've ever seen before. So there's a big range, and I guess time will tell where digital comics kind of shake up. But just like Uh, The book publishing world is trying to see where, uh, you know, digital books or e-books are going to go comics is kind of in that same state of limbo right now as we try to figure out where things are going to go.
4: Okay, and at the forum, will you discuss this stuff or have different speakers in all the different ve- avenues of comics?
3: Well, we've got uh, five different panel discussions happening throughout the day. Um, we've got a panel discussion on libraries and how comics are accepted by and how what librarians think about that. We've got a uh, Comics Redefined panel, which is talking about anything from uh, deconstruction of Spider-Man and some of its older artists to uh, masculinity in fanboyism in comics. Uh, We've got uh, one on the Artist Spotlight, which features the keynote speaker that we have coming on Friday, uh, in addition to a couple of other artists, um, Golden Age comics and graphic novel resources, um, and even a documentary screening on comic book culture in Portland, Oregon,
4: Is that a big place for comics? Uh,
3: Portland is a pretty big hub for comics. Yeah, there's a lot of creators up there, both mainstream and independent.
4: And how does the Lansing community compare with others in the comic world?
3: I think Michigan as a whole is a really surprising hotbed of comic creators we've got um guy davis who worked on bprd which is an offshoot of hellboy Uh, we've got uh jason howard who works on the astounding wolfman and super dinosaur for robert kirkman who's the writer for the walking dead Uh, we've got david peterson who does mouse guard um, you know, the list goes on. Uh Ryan Stegman, he's working on Spider-Man. These are some of the larger names that I'm thinking of, but there's also a lot of independent creators. Um so, yeah, lots of uh action around Michigan. I was kind of surprised to find out, you know, moving from California about 5 years ago.
4: Mm-hmm. And what who are your favorites among those not maybe not those, but just the comic artists in general?
3: Um there's a, an artist named Sergio Aragones who... a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> cool dude, too. He's done everything from, like, vaudeville to comics. And uh, you probably know his work if you've ever picked up Mad Magazine before. Sure. And there's these tiny, tiny comics in the margins of Mad Magazine. Yes. He's been doing that for, you know, decades now. Wow. But he's also got this uh, creator-owned series called Gru the Wanderer. And it's about this, like... Conan the Barbarian spoof. This guy is very good with his swords, but very dumb in the head, and makes for a lot of you know funny, wacky hijinks.
4: Sure. Now, what are your goals in the comics world?
3: Um, I am really interested in producing my own autobiographical comics, and uh, you know, I've started out with autobiographical strips where it's basically like a page a day format. But then the series has kind of uh, changed format as it's progressed. One of my more recent books was part of my graduate studies actually, um, uh, I found this theory which states that autobiography is no more truthful or valid than fiction, which got me thinking, you know, what could I do to make it any more uh, objective uh, than it already is? So I interviewed a bunch of people in my life with questions about me, and, uh, but I didn't interview them face-to-face because I didn't want to influence their responses. So I put each of them in an isolated room with only a box of questions and a tape recorder and wow. let them have at it. So one of my comic books is a transcription, a comic book transcription of those interviews. Uh, And I've gone on to produce things about, uh, you know, autobiographical theory in comics. And I'm just about to start working on... uh, More of a biographical comic about my dad growing up in very rural Arizona where, you know, he lived on dirt floors and his uh, parents worked uh, for the railroad. So he grew up in boxcars part of the time and just has all these amazing stories that I'd like to commit to the printed page
4: okay now will your future child come along in the comics you think
3: Uh, he's expecting yeah yeah my wife is about six and a half months along right now (laughs) we're very excited to have our first child so i i can't imagine him not gracing the pages of (laughs) my comics at some point
4: well great and you know one last thing what do you hope the attendance of this comics forum will really get out of the event
3: uh I hope that people see that there's really just an incredible range of comics being produced these days I think there's still kind of a misnomer that comics are kid stuff they're just juvenile pap they're either you know men and tights or funny animals and there's so much more to it than that I mean there's anything from uh, autobiographical comics that I just mentioned that I'm doing or uh, historical comics or educational comics humor horror you know the Uh, range is just infinite. It's like, it's, I kind of compare it to walking into a bookstore and thinking that there are only cookbooks in this bookstore. You know, there's a huge range of books to choose from, and there is an equally huge range of comics to choose from. So I think if anybody shows up, they're going to find something that they're interested in.
4: Well, great. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, again, this is happening this weekend, so be sure you can check it out. Thanks so much. Tonight, for our Spartan Spotlight, we have a mix of current and graduated Spartans. These Spartans make up the Peter Nelson Quartet, a Lansing jazz band. Led by Peter Nelson himself, the band incorporates a variety of original music and arrangements. You heard one of their songs earlier tonight. Now, they perform every Thursday evening at the Avenue Cafe, but I sat down with the band earlier this week.
9: I'm Matt LaRusso. I play guitar. Hi, my name's
10: Sam Copperman, and I'm the bass player. My name's Judson Branham, and I play the drum set.
7: My name's Peter Nelson. I play trombone, sing, and I play melodica.
4: And this is the Peter Nelson Quartet. So first off, tell us about your band.
7: Uh, this band I originally put together is kind of an outlet to, uh, to play a lot of original music. And um, a lot of us are playing in lots of different groups where we do a lot of cover, cover music, and I, I play backup horn section all the time. But this was a great outlet to play original music and a great outlet to, uh, to play with some of my best friends. Many of these, actually all of these guys I've, I've known for a long time and Matt and I actually have been playing together since we were 15 or so, 15, 14 16. or 15. Yeah, something like so this was initially you know, put together to, to just fill a need to play good music, and uh, but it turned into a, a working endeavor and it's, it's great, it's fun.
4: And are you guys all Spartans? Yes. yes.
7: Yeah.
4: Okay. So does it, feel, does it feel good to be back in the college town?
9: Yeah, I'm, I'm still currently a student, so... Okay. I am too, so...
4: Okay. And how did you guys all connect?
7: Uh, like I said, Matt and I, actually, we were really fortunate to have an opportunity to tour Western Europe wow. uh, in the summer of 2006 or seven. One of the two. Yeah, 2006. I think it was actually the summer of 2007. We toured with the Blue Lake International Jazz Orchestra. So, you know, we've been playing since then. We played at the Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp before then. I've uh, been playing with Matt... Or not, not, no nom sorry excuse me i been playing with Sam uh, since like freshman year you know but Sam and I have a special relationship we, we used to shed tunes all of sophomore year which practice excuse me we used to practice tunes um, at least four times a week every evening so I there's no bass player in the world I'd rather play with than Sam except maybe his teacher <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Jud you know Jud it's always a pleasure to play with Judd one of the best drummers I've had the opportunity to play with and uh, and Judd actually was the last to join the band. Uh, first, it was a trio, and um, and his energy has brought has brought uh, a lot of an incredible amount of artistry and direction to the band. So, so we've been playing as a unit. To answer your original question, excuse me, this <laughs> is a very long winter. No, to answer your original question, we've been playing as a unit
9: since about September. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually interesting to think that we started as a trio, and yeah. now we're doing something completely different so Mm -hmm. yeah it was very very laid back all like bosses like bossa novas
4: Mm -hmm. uh, so you're fairly new still it's exciting for you guys yeah absolutely and now you know being young it's you don't find really young jazz musicians you know every day so why do you choose jazz music what about it made you you know interested in that
7: i'll let you guys take this one first
9: yeah i love the uh the honesty of it the expression of it the artistry of it and just overall how, how beautiful it is to me. Like the music, it, it speaks to me on a level that no other sort of music does because of
7: the, uh, the spirit and the emotion that the players, namely like the masters, put into it. Not to say that people don't do that now because everybody, everybody's great, but um, but yeah, the, the way the masters play really just, just spoke to me and it just just called me to it and I just wanted to express myself like that.
4: How about you?
10: Well, I can't really say why. <laughs> I mean, I, I play it because I like it. I certainly enjoy it playing it more than any other kind of music. But I wouldn't, like, kind of put it on a pedestal as an art form. It's just my preferred medium.
9: Okay. <laughs> um, I really like, as Judd said, like the expression of it, the artistry. And there's so much complexity happening constantly when you're playing this music. Uh, and on top of that, with traditional jazz music, there's a very strong language and tradition that is more passed down from older generations to younger generations. And that's something that's always like, intrigued me. And once you start learning it, uh, the way you can communicate musically just skyrockets in possibilities. So.
4: And when there's not um you know lyrics with your music and it's solely instrumental, do you feel, still feel like there, it tells a story?
7: Absolutely, I think even sometimes more so, uh, at least for me and I you know it's really important. I think all these guys kind of touched on it, but jazz is the uh, is the epitome for me of artistic communication because it it involves a great deal of improvisation and spontaneity and uh, and a great deal of trust you know I wouldn't uh, i would trust any of these guys with my life in the room and it's really important that you have that relationship on the bandstand because the jazz music can take any direction at any point in time so you know an improvisation sometimes people think about that as as a really kind of elevated concept but we improvise all the time you know we're improvising right now we don't we're not reading scripts we have we don't have a preconceived notion of what we're saying uh, we're just using our prior existing knowledge of, of language and rhetoric to create new spontaneous intent and new meaning that's going to only happen, only happen in this moment right now. And that's what jazz music is about to me, is cultivation of the moment and celebration of the moment. So. Uh,
10: I find often people ask me the question, like, does studying improvisation in music make you feel like more prepared to just improvise in everyday life? But I find it's very much the opposite. Just, you know, living every day and everything you experience informs what you're playing in the music, not the other way.
4: Okay, that's really interesting. Now what, you guys, have an exciting time coming up because you're releasing a new album called Watercolors. Tell us a little bit about the album.
7: The album initially was, uh, we we thought about it back as a trio and we were were thinking about how can we, because, you know, Unfortunately, the jazz really never had a lot of um, kind of mainstream attention because it's it's not quite as accessible, you know, as, as some other music. In my opinion, uh, that's that's the reason. But um, but we wanted to you know make a really accessible album that anybody could listen to, um, but but not cultivate the artistic and creative integrity of what we're doing. So we initially were going to do a whole bunch of arrangements of. You know, jazz standards or old American songbook standards and Bossa Nova standards uh, and then Judd joined the group and we we're like okay well let's take it a step further so we, we have a lot of music uh, on the record we a, lot, a lot of arrangements of standards that we talked about but we also I wrote uh, string arrangements so on four of the tracks I think it is we have uh, string players as well so the aim of the album is to be as accessible as possible to the general public uh, while still maintaining our artistic spirit and
9: vision
4: now, for you guys, what's your future hold for this band? What are you thinking?
9: Carnegie. Uh, <laughs> World tour. <laughs> it seems like we're just kind of taking steps, I feel like. And uh, whatever opportunities were presented, we just run with it.
4: Where do you perform now?
9: We perform each week at uh, at the
7: Avenue Cafe, uh, which is on Michigan Avenue. Um, downtown Lansing. Downtown Lansing, or close to downtown Lansing on the way. It's more on the east side of Lansing, and it's... Uh, we play from, from 9 o'clock to 11 every Thursday, followed by an open jam session, and we would uh, love to share that with anybody that would like to come out.
4: Now where do you guys find your inspiration for your music? Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. All Everywhere. sorts
7: of music. Yeah. Right now, everything. You know, you can only really, you can only write or perform or play from your own experience. You know, anything else is going to be uh, kind of superficial. So every moment you know that you're living that sounds so cliche but seriously every moment that you're living is a uh, is a medium of inspiration for for me every opportunity for sure. you have for sure every mistake you make every every success everything
10: i find um kind of more directly it comes from other people's music mm, um yeah. we all listen to a lot of different styles I and mean, jazz particularly but a lot of other things, and so we're always drawing on, uh, you know, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, and we're drawing from all the records that have come before us.
4: Well, thank you guys very much for coming. This is the Peter Nelson Quartet. Thanks for having us. The Peter Nelson Quartet will close the show tonight. Special thanks to our producer, Gabby Saldivia. Our station manager is Aaron Young, and our general manager is Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week. This is Abby Newton for Impact Exposure, 89FM.
7: This is the Peter Nelson Quartet performing Dawn in Winter.